I've spoken on this particular topic a few different times, and it tends to be a popular one, uh, which I'm happy about because I'm a, an enthusiast of art, so I'm glad that so many people are interested in the topic. And I think, as you'll see tonight, it's there's a, this conversation about art and the evolution of culture and the the role that artistic endeavor plays in shaping who we are is, uh, it opens up into a lot of different avenues. Um, and we'll try to get to as many as we can tonight, starting with Plato. So please settle in, it's gonna be a long time. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we will start with Plato though, uh, briefly. But first I want us to just um, meditate in silence for a minute. And specifically what I would ask you to do is just allow yourself to relax into what you could call non-conceptual awareness. So just having whatever experience you're having without thinking about it, without knowing anything about it, just being. Okay, great, let's leave it at that. <clears throat> How many people heard uh, a beep during the meditation? Raise your hands high. How many people knew what the beep was? So theoretically, if we were really abiding in non-conceptual consciousness, we wouldn't know what it was. It would just be a sound and there would be no knowledge. But you can see how difficult, it was a great, whoever did that thing, there you go, that's, so, that's actually really great. Um, because what happens is, the experience of the sound and the knowing of what the sound is arise more or less simultaneously in consciousness. Um, it's very difficult to not know what something is if you're familiar with it, when you hear it like that. Like the other sound, is that ice dropping? Mm -hmm. So, you know, like, if you didn't know what it was, you just go, what's that sound? But once you know what it is, you're like, oh, there's ice cubes dropping in the tray. And it's very difficult, once the knowing of something and the thing itself have been fused in your mind, it's very difficult to separate them. Um, so I'm, I had no intention of talking about that, but it, it's, you know, a lot of this is like jazz improv, you know? <laughs> And it's actually perfect because it will relate quite a bit to what we want to cover tonight um, as we move on. So first I want to um, 
I want to start with Plato. Uh, so Plato is often thought of as one of the pillars of Western philosophy. Is anyone in the room familiar with Plato's view of art? Great, then I can't be wrong. Uh, <laughs> um, Plato had a very low view of art. Uh, he, he defined art as, as, or he thought of art in terms of um, imitation, that art was kind of an imitation of life. So when you, you have a tree and then you paint a picture of a tree, you're imitating life. So art is kind of second rate. And you know the actual tree is the first-rate thing. So uh, <clears throat> you know that was that was Plato's Plato's view of art from ancient Greek times. We clearly have a very different view of art today, uh, and I'm mainly today going to be speaking about the modern view of art. Uh, and I'm going to begin this. Oh, except I lost my book. Thank you. Yep. I'm going to begin by just reading a couple of paragraphs from a book by a, a favorite philosopher of mine named Richard Rorty. This happens to be a book called Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity. Rorty was uh, at Princeton University. He was also at the University of Virginia. He was a major um, philosophical figure in the US through the, particularly the second half of the 20th century. Some of you may have seen a couple of paragraphs of his that have been floating around Facebook uh, where he sort of describes, 20 years ago, he described the, the political situation we're in today with a kind of uncanny accuracy. Um, and so that's been floating around the internet, which has been boosting up his, uh, his notoriety. But this book, I just wanted to read the first couple of paragraphs because it sets a nice context for everything I want to say today. Uh, and so he begins saying, about 200 years ago, so it's 2017, so that would be 1817. About 200 years ago, the idea that truth was made rather than found began to take hold of the imagination of Europe. So this is a, a really important distinction. Uh, there, there began about 200 years ago, 200 and some years ago, this new idea about truth. That truth was made, it was created, not found, not discovered. That truth wasn't out there waiting for us to discover it. Truth was something that we created rather than, than made. So 200 years ago, this idea began to take hold of the imagination of Europe. The French Revolution had shown that the whole vocabulary of social relations and the whole spectrum of social institutions could be replaced almost overnight. So everything that had in, in the times of the monarchy, been thought of as the truth, suddenly there was this revolution. And in a very short amount of time, none of that was true anymore. And a whole new set of things was true. So that made people think, well, what is truth then? How, how could we just wholesale shift our entire culture? This precedent made utopian politics the rule rather than the exception among intellectuals. So suddenly, now you thought, wow, if we're creating reality, we can create the perfect reality. And so you know, that wasn't something that you thought of in the Middle Ages. That wasn't a thought you could have, because in the Middle Ages, God created everything. There was this distinct hierarchy. Nothing was able to move. What, you know, it, you know, I was, we were saying this at dinner today. In the Middle Ages, in the Christian tradition, 
there were sinners and saints. Sinners were the bad people and saints were the good people. But in, in the early Christian tradition, you were born one or the other. You, you couldn't, you couldn't, there was no redemption. You couldn't work hard if you were a sinner and become a saint. You were just one or the other how you were born. The only thing is nobody knew. That was the trick. Because, you know, the baby was born. They all look the same. You can't tell which is the sinners or the saints. So you have to watch them over their lives. And then at some point you figure out, aha, sinner, got it. Um, but there was no belief that you could improve your station or change because everything was set from birth. So that started to change at this time. It said at about the same time, the Romantic poets, which is going to figure a lot into our conversation tonight, the Romantic poets were showing what happens when art is thought of no longer is thought of no longer as imitation, which is, was Plato's idea, and which was an idea dominant through the kind of classical period. It was thought no longer as imitation, but rather as the artist's self-creation. So this is, a, this is not the way people thought post 200 years ago, that art was a kind of creative endeavor. You were actually manifesting something. You were bringing something into being that didn't exist before. That's not how art was thought about. Um, the poets claimed for art the place in culture, in, in culture traditionally held by religion and philosophy, the place which the Enlightenment had claimed for science. The precedent the Romantics set lent initial plausibility to their claim. The actual role of novels, poems, plays, paintings, statues, and buildings in the social movements of the last century, last century and a half has given it still greater plausibility. So the Romantic poets, which were people like Wordsworth and Coleridge in England, um, Mary Shelley, Percy Bush Shelley, uh, in Germany, Fichte and Schelling uh, and Hegel and Novalis in France, et cetera, et cetera. These, the Romantics were, were having this idea that we're not just imitating life. Our, Poems aren't imitations of life. Our paintings aren't imitations of life. They're actual creations. We're giving birth to something. And this that we're giving birth to can grow into a culture and grow into a new world. And this is a very different idea. Uh, so with the birth of that idea, which in, in the Romantic Revolution is to some extent pushing against the Enlightenment tradition, and the scientific tradition, because uh, the scientific tradition of the Enlightenment would tend to want to say that truth, truth is set by natural law. Human beings can't change the truth. The truth is what it is. It's the way the universe is. And, and science is the way that we discover the truth of the way the universe is. And, and the romantic artists want to say, truth isn't necessarily just the way things are. Truth is the way we create them to be. Uh, and so they want to add a creative element. So uh, according to someone like uh, the German philosopher Nietzsche, who uh, was an existentialist, he recognizes that this split be between the more scientific view and this more creative view, 
He recognizes that as a split that go, that's in the Western psyche, so that means in our minds, that goes all the way to the back to the beginning of Western culture, because unlike many other cultural traditions, the Western culture has not one, but two roots. And the two roots actually have different views on truth. And so we, as Western people, have two different views of truth that is actually embedded in our language and in our minds, which you know, Nietzsche, at least, thought was this, the source of our kind of somewhat schizophrenic Western personality and a lot of the neuroses that we faced. But the way he described it is this. Um, the two roots of Western civilization are the ancient Greek tradition, Plato, Socrates, Parmenides, etc., and the Judeo-Christian tradition. And, and so the way that, and then those two traditions essentially came together in the Middle Ages in something that was called uh, the medieval fusion, where the intellectuals and the thinkers of the time said, okay, we've got a problem because we've got our Christian tradition over here, and now we're discovering all these writings by Aristotle and Plato over here, and they're not saying the same thing. What are we gonna do? And they said, I know what we'll do. We'll just blend them together. And so a lot of what we know of as, as the Christian tradition is emerged out of a blending of Greek thought and Christian thought together. Um, so what Nietzsche said was we have two ways of understanding truth. And our word truth we use in two fundamental ways. So one is the Greek way. So truth points to facts. That's the Greek way of looking at it. So Plato said, in the ideal realm is where all the real, real things exist. That's the realm of the mind. So none of you are real humans. You're all imperfect examples of the ideal of being human. But the ideal of being human is what's real. That's realer than your example of being human. You're going to be flawed in all kinds of ways. Um, the, way, the reason Plato and others came to that was because they said, uh, you can think in mathematical terms of a perfect triangle in which all the three corners are identical. But you can never find an actual triangle that if you measure it closely enough will prove to be exactly perfect because nothing in the realm of manifestation is perfect. Perfection is, is, is for, the, for the ideal realm. That's where the idea of heaven comes from. That's a big part of where the idea of heaven comes from, that it's the ideal realm where all the perfect stuff is. Um, and, and of course, that, gets, that idea gets blended with the more Judeo-Christian idea of heaven to become what we kind of thought of as heaven. So that's one truth. It's the truth of fact. And we use that, we use the word truth to mean that all the time. We say, that's not the truth. When, when someone tells you something is wrong and you say, that's not the truth, what you mean is, it's not the truth. It's actually not a fact. And, and the example that Nietzsche used to, to demonstrate this was uh, Galileo. Galileo Galilei, who um, wrote this book about how it was actually the sun that was the center of the universe and not the earth. And then the church was like, whoa, you know, this is bad because the Bible says something different. <clears throat> um, and so they did what any good society would do. They took Galileo, dragged him into a dungeon and said, okay, look, 
You either retract this statement about the silly, this silly statement about the sun, or we kill you. So what do you think is true? And Galileo said, think you're right. The Earth is actually the center of the universe. The sun revolves around the Earth. My calculations were wrong. I'm sorry I bothered you. Can I go now? Yes, you can go. And supposedly the story, the, the mythical story of Galileo is when he walked out of the courthouse, he said, sun's the center of the universe anyway. Right? So in that view of truth, what human beings believe is irrelevant to what the truth is. You know, truth exists independent of our beliefs about it. It doesn't matter what we believe. The truth is not the truth. So he said, OK, that's one heart, part of our, our, our psyche. The other part is he represents by uh, the historical story or religious story of Jesus on the cross, when basically he's in the same scenario. They're dragging him to a cross. They're going to crucify him. They say, look, this whole, you know, I'm king of the Jews stuff, this isn't working for us. So basically, if you'll just say, no, I'm not the king of the Jews, we'll let you live. But if you don't, we're gonna, this is going to be the end for you. And he said, I can't do it. I can't. I can't. I can't deny the truth. And, and so, so then the question is, why could Galileo do it so easily, but Jesus couldn't? Because Jesus was using a different understanding of truth. So, and we use it routinely when we say something like, I shot an arrow and it was true. right? It meant it was straight. Or when I say, I'm true to my word. That doesn't mean that I'm saying something that's right, independent of me, it means that I'm taking a stand. So our two ways of understanding truth, one is we understand it as a statement of fact, and the other is we understand it as a stand that we have to take. One has nothing to do with us. It's what's true no matter what, and, and whether we believe it or not or stand for it or not is completely irrelevant. Galileo can, in perfectly good conscience, leave the courthouse and say, you know, the sun's the center anyway. I don't care what you guys think. And I don't care whether you print my book or not either. Uh, and, but Jesus can't say that he's not who everyone's saying he is because then he'll be giving up the stand. And the stand is where the truth is. Uh, and so we have both of those understandings of truth. In the time of the Enlightenment, the understanding of truth that was coming to sort of full flower was the Greek understanding of fact. And so science is thought of as a way of pursuing facts. The facts are assumed to exist somewhere in the universe, ready to be discovered. Um, so the Romantics came along, and they started to be the champion of the other view of truth, which is which has, has to do with the fact that we, as human beings, have a creative role to play in generating what's true. We don't have to just be stuck in the truth that exists. We can actually participate in creating it. And at least to the, to the romantics, uh, you know, the, way, the way that they, their belief was uh, that the, the best way that we could participate in the creation of truth was by participating in the creation of art. That art is, is kind of the initial seeds of new truth that are being sprouted. Um, and for those of you who have a more scientific background, um, there's a book which I have not read in full. 
but I've looked at and I'm very fascinated by it because I actually, as an undergraduate, studied physics and worked as an engineer for a long time. So I was a very pro-science uh, and I don't mean to sound anti-science at all. So this book is called Art and Physics. Um, it's been a bestseller in many countries and reprinted many times over the decades. And it basically historically travels through the history of physics showing how different artistic emergences uh, precipitated uh, scientific uh, revelations, scientific discoveries. And it's basically trying to make the point that art sort of was opening the door to things that were later discovered scientifically. And so then the obvious question would be, does that mean that the artists were seeing something that was true in the universe first and expressing it in art? Or does it mean that the art they were creating was creating the reality of those things that were later discovered by science. Um, I personally believe the latter, but you know that's not anything I can prove to you. Um, so this, that's the kind of broadest general introduction of kind of this, this split, which we're going to be talking about in different ways. Um, so the whole evening here is about art. And, and one of the great things about art is it's a very little word, so it's easy to spell, A-R-T. And it's a little word that creates enormous amounts of controversy. So people create all kinds of stuff, and they say it's art. And other people say, that's not art. You know, and it's very difficult to actually come to consensus about the question, what is art? Uh, and, and so I wanted to go through a few different ways that at least some people have thought about what is art. I don't know that we're going to come to a final consensus today, but I'll definitely give you my some of my front-running ideas. So one, uh, and, and broadly, Tolstoy uh, wrote a book, a, sh a short little book called What is Art? Uh, Tolstoy is generally considered an existentialist. Uh, existentialists came after the Romantics, but at least in my mind, I kind of see the existentialism as an extension of Romanticism. So there's a lot of romantic elements in someone like Tolstoy. So he wrote What is Art? It's, a, it's, a, it's not a very long book. It's kind of, a, kind of a long essay, I guess you'd almost say. And about half of it is him critiquing all the artists that he thinks are rubbish. So it gets kind of boring, because most of them I've never heard of. <laughs> First of all, I think they were mostly Russian. And uh, probably they didn't get very famous, because they probably were not that good. Um, but the other parts were about his theory of art. And, and his basic way of understanding art is that an artistic creation, when, when an artist creates a piece of art, what they're doing is, and I'm not necessarily saying I believe these. I'm just sharing them with you. Um, what the artist is doing is they're getting very deeply in touch with some inner feeling state that they're having that they want to communicate. And then they're creating an artifact that, when, when engaged with by someone, will trigger the same feeling state that they're having. Now, I had a, personally a very dramatic uh, example of this in my life at one point. I, besides studying physics, before I studied physics, I wanted to be an artist. But my father told me I couldn't be an artist because artists don't make money. So, I stopped being an artist and decided that I'd be a physicist for some reason. Um, but 
I always loved art, and, and I, I, I lived in Boston for a long time, and I used to go to the Museum of Fine Art in Boston. And they have a very beautiful uh, exhibit of Monet paintings. And uh, I don't know if any of you have seen it, but he has a series of paintings that I think is called Cathedral at Sunrise. And there's all, you know, he, he would do all different studies in different color schemes. And, and so there were a few of them up on the wall. And there was one on the wall in the museum which was almost entirely different shades of yellow and white. And, and you could, if you were really close, you couldn't really see anything except splotches of yellow and white. But if you got a little further away, you could start to see some vague outline, sort of, of, of a cathedral, not very distinctly at all. And you get quite far away, and you still can't really see anything very distinctly. It's, and I remember looking at this. I mean, I thought, oh, this is Monet, and he's a world-famous artist, so this must be a good painting. But it doesn't look very good to me. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was not very cultured at the time. But I was looking at it, and I was going, why is this considered to be good? And I kept looking and looking. And it, it was not very distinct. It's not very clear. I didn't really get it. And then at some point, I thought, you know, looking at this painting actually hurts my eyes. It's so yellow. And, and then all of a sudden, I went, oh, that's what he meant. It's literally like looking at the cathedral at sunrise when the sun is bouncing off of it right into your eyes so that you actually can't see the cathedral. That's why the cathedral's so vague. And I, I go, oh my god, this is brilliant. And I totally <laughs> got, I had the total feeling of being at this majestic cathedral right at that exact moment of sun, sunrise when the sun shone right into my eyes. And I thought he somehow took that moment that he was experiencing and he captured it on this two-dimensional surface. And this is amazing. So now it's my favorite painting. Um, and, and, but you know, that would be an example of, the, of sort of Tolstoy's view of art, which is he had some experience that he wanted to convey, and he conveyed it through, through a piece of art. And so to Tolstoy, the measure of a great piece of art, so, so in this case, the measure would be to what degree did the viewer, did the person seeing it, how, to what degree was the feeling of the artist transmitted through the work? And that was basically what his book is about, is this kind of inner transmission of, of feeling. Um, so a little bit later, <clears throat> another philosopher, this time an American named John Dewey, he wrote a big fat book that lots of people read in college when, when they study art called Art as Experience. Um, and I think he also is putting together a very interesting piece of the puzzle of what is art. Um, and one that we're going to talk about uh, a little bit more as the night goes on. So what Dewey said was art, what makes art art? That, so the question he was asking is, what makes art art? So you have two things. You know, let's say, for instance, um, I, I'm, I went to the, uh, to the Louvre. And I saw the Mona Lisa. Has anyone seen the Mona Lisa? And it's like on that wall, kind of all by it's this big wall. And it's the only thing on it. It's like so awesome, because the, the whole place is kind of packed with paintings, except in this room, there's one massive wall that's just got one painting on it. And there's you know, 300 people trying to see it. Uh, it's really an amazing, I don't know, the whole thing is amazing. But you look at the Mona Lisa, and you think, that's amazing. That's a beautiful piece of art. 
Now, there are counterfeiters, art counterfeiters, who can create a Mona Lisa that almost nobody could tell a difference. You know, maybe if you, you know, you could use instruments, you could tell a difference, and maybe some incredibly trained curator could tell a difference, maybe not. Uh, but I think most of us would agree that if you put the, if this is the real Mona Lisa, and this is the one that was made two weeks ago by the counterfeiter, that this one is real art and this one isn't. And if this one is art, it's a very different kind of art than this one is. And it may be artistic because it's amazing how it was re replicated, but it's not artistic in the same way that the original is. And, and the question is, why do we feel that way? It's because of what John Dewey identified as, as, the, as one of the characteristics of art, which is that uh, he said, the quality that makes art art is not in the piece of art. It's not in the painting. It's not in the music. It's not in the stage production. It's in the process through which the art was made. That's what makes art art versus not art. And specifically, an artistic process. So to him, art, anything you could call art, would be something that was created out of the artistic process. And the artistic process is different than the counterfeiter's process. And the main difference is that when an artist, according to Dewey, when an artist enters into an artistic process, they don't know what the final result will be. They enter into a process that has a life of its own. And they enter into a communication with the final result that begins to occur. As soon, so as soon as you, you get a blank page, you may have ideas about what's going to happen, but you don't actually know. And you start painting, and what you're painting starts to talk to you, and then and you start to go this way. And I've totally had this experience. Uh, it's one of the experiences I'm, I'm attempting to cultivate in myself and people that I work with, which is the ability to release into an artistic endeavor so that you um, you really, so that things are starting to happen that aren't part of your pre-planning. This was Dewey's point, is that you are surrendering to an artistic process and you're following it to its end. You don't know exactly where it's going to go, but you're willing to keep participating. And maybe that's not really what you intended this to look like, but you're going to go with it. Uh, I had this experience as part of my own kind of ongoing developmental studies. I'm uh, in the middle of writing a novel because I've never written a novel before. I've only written uh, nonfiction. And I really want to write it very in this kind of artistic flow. And I had this incredible experience about three weeks ago where I was writing. It was a scene with someone getting off a train, and someone else was trying to catch them, and they were going to run away. And I was typing. And the person who was, who was trying to catch them screamed, you know, stop, or whatever they screamed. And, and the person who was going to run away didn't run away. They actually stopped and said, what? And I went, oh, shit. <laughs> that was not my plan. <laughs> I didn't want them to stop. I wanted them to, I had a whole plan of they were going to run and where they were going to end up. And, and all of a sudden, I was now in a different book than the one I had been writing. <laughs> and, but I thought, OK, this is exactly how it works. And the same thing can happen with an artistic piece. You're painting something, and all of a sudden, oh, I didn't really mean to do that. 
but that's what wants to happen. So I'm going to see where it wants to go. And so there's a, and so what Dewey said is when you're in that kind of process with a work of art, then you're creating art because something's happening beyond you, which he, he, put, he pitted that against what might be like a skilled craft, which the counterfeiters painting is more of a skilled craft. They know exactly what they're going to end up with at the end. And, and the closer they get to what they're planning, the better, uh, because they want an exact replica. So there's not room for a mystery in that. And so from Dewey's point of view, that takes the art out of it, because there's nothing that can enter into it that wasn't already in the person's plan from the beginning. It's more like following a blueprint. Um, so, particularly if we think about John Dewey's definition of art, what you see as being crucial to the artistic endeavor is that there's room for something to come through that's not coming from you as the artist. You know, that there's some kind of space for something to mysteriously appear that isn't just something you thought of ahead of time. So I want us to sit again for a minute and just enter into, once again, this space of just easy, non-conceptual, being here, being aware, not knowing anything, and if you're able to do it, you enter into a space that's very big, very unformed, I like to refer to it as creative emptiness. And it's the space where novelty and intuition arise. Because we've freed ourselves from the structure of all of our ideas about everything. And we've left space for something to emerge that is beyond what we already know or understand. OK, thank you. So I would want to add that I haven't found too much. I mean, I think there's tons of literature about that phenomena. But I would want to add that as an, a third component of what is art, is that there needs to be some access to the beyond, to this creative emptiness, um, so that what can come out can have a degree of actual creativity to it, novelty, newness. Um, and you know, different artists in different time periods have had different means that either worked or didn't work to generate that kind of creative emptiness. The Romantics were quite fond of uh, opium as a means of creative, uh, finding creative emptiness. I think that sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. Uh, a few of them ended up quite insane and, uh, and then later dead. So that didn't really work out. Um, but you know, you can. You can see why there has traditionally, at least since the Romantic period, been a kind of 
connection between mind-altering substances and art because there's a, there's a, there's a promise of uh, it giving you access to this kind of creative, free uh, uh, spaciousness. Uh, so if we just jump into more modern times, uh, Jackson Pollock, the painter who splashed paint on huge canvases. Um, I have a friend who uh, was part of those circles in Long Island with Jackson Pollock and Thomas de Kooning and would go to their parties. She was younger than them, uh, but she was an artist and more up and coming. And she tells this great story about how Thomas de Kooning, who was quite well known already at the time that she met him. William. Oh, sorry, William, thank you. Um, at a party, asked her, I don't know what the context for the question was, but uh, he, he offered to share his color palette with her. And she tells the story very funny because she realized that she was supposed to be very flattered that William de Kooning was offering his color palette. And she said, I have my own color palette. <laughs> <laughs> and she's actually a magnificent artist. She, she's still alive. Um, but what they were all into, the, these, this Long Island collection of artists, were, uh, besides drinking and drugs, which was also something they were into, but they were also into, which is what I talked about in my last lecture, accessing spontaneity. And, and that's what, what Jackson Pollock would do. Supposedly his, uh, his way of painting, he, he liked to use big surfaces. They'd be you know, 10, 20, 30 feet square. And he'd lay them down in his studio on the floor because he liked to be able to sort of walk all around them, walk sort of over them, not step on them, but kind of walk over the corners. He wanted to be as inside the frame as possible so that he was kind of one with the painting while it was developing. And supposedly he would spend days just meditating with the canvas until he was in the state that he wanted to paint from. And then he would just go. I, could, I wish I could have seen videos of him because it was probably amazing. Um, and then it would be done. And it would, you know, it would be this kind of spontaneous flurry. So the idea was if you, can, if you can be completely spontaneous, then something will come through you. It's not your mind because your mind's not active in spontaneity. There's, your experience is just let go. And then the painting's there at the end. And you go, wow, that's amazing. Where'd that come from? Um, so. So there's this access to, to creativity. So, th so the three things that I wanted to share, and we don't have to decide. I have a feeling they're all part of art, and art is probably more than these. One is that it, there's, it involves a transmission of an interstate of an artist into an artifact that then holds that interstate and, and can be transmitted to, to people who see it. Uh, there's the process of art, which is a, a communicative process with the piece through which art gets produced that, that can't be predicted. And then this last piece, which is some kind of access to a space beyond the mind that allows for novelty to emerge. So somewhere in there is a pretty good definition of art, um, at least in my mind. <clears throat> so then the question is, well, what's the value of art? What's the, because this is all about art and culture. Uh, Martin Heidegger, the German philosopher, liked to talk about how uh, 
the job of art, he talked about a very interesting distinction. He talked about art, art working as art versus just art. And so he would say that the Mona Lisa, when we go see it, it's on that big wall and it looks amazing and 300 people are crowding around, is definitely art, but it's not working as art anymore. Because to him, in order for art to work as art, it has to be viewed in the culture that it was meant to speak to. So we don't see in the Mona Lisa what was meant to be conveyed because we don't have the cultural background to be affected by it. We can appreciate the magnificence of it and the historical significance of it, but we can't see it the way it was seen at the time it was painted. Because at the time it was painted, it was shocking for all kinds of reasons. It's not really shocking to us in the same way. We're, it's not challenging our view of reality. It's more something we admire and, and love. So when art works as art, it's doing one of two things. It's either presenting to us our highest values, and he liked to use like a Greek temple. His, his kind of examples of that was a Greek temple or Homer's Iliad, the, the, the great poem, uh, or uh, Dante's Paradise Lost poem. That These were poems that were kind of displaying our highest values, like the values that our society is based on. So when Dante takes people through the, the, the levels of heaven and hell, right? That's the ordering of the medieval universe. You've got the God on top and, and all these layers right down to the, the bottom, which is uh, the divine comedy, sorry. Uh, right down to the devil. So in Dante, just this is like an aside I always like to throw in because I find it fascinating. <clears throat> so as you get all the way down the levels to the very bottom level of hell, the second to the bottom level of hell this is really bad. Nobody really wants to get there. That's where you're in this kind of molten fire, and you're melting, and you're trying to get out, but you can't because it, you, know, you reach out, but then the fire pulls you back, and you're just burning up. But that's the second to the last. Uh, you know, that's like not the basement of hell. That's, that's one step up from the basement. So for Dante, the basement of hell, the worst place which was reserved just for Lucifer and the generals, you know, the angels that had turned. The bottom level, does anyone know? It was a frozen lake. And, and the devil and all of the angels that had turned to Lucifer's side to become the generals of his kind of evil army, they were all in the frozen lake. And the reason is because they could no longer be moved by God. They had turned. They had turned their, their back on goodness, and they were now frozen. And, and God and goodness could no longer move their souls. And so, so even the people who were burning up were one step up, because at least they wanted to not burn. And, and these guys were just completely frozen. Anyway, the point is that Dante's poem was, he was revered like as a saint. In, in the medieval times in Italy. And if you go to Florence, you see like the place where he sat. And, and you know, he sat here, and he walked here, and he you know, da, da, da. I mean, he was, he was showing people what they were. That's, that's how, as Heidegger says, this is one of the things art does for us, is it shows us who we are. And so we revere it, because it allows us to know ourselves. Uh, and this can be true of a, of a big culture, like 
the entire of middle, medieval times, or it can be true of a counterculture, a smaller culture. So a great example to use for, for most of us uh, is the example of the counterculture of the 1960s. And so in the 1960s, there was a movement, a cultural movement that was occurring, uh, often called the counterculture, or the hippie movement. And, and, and the main art form that was unifying that movement was music, folk music and rock music. And so the, the music that was revered in the times, and, and I, well, I don't know what it was. Last week I went through this kind of 60s revival where I just, I don't know, it was my wife and I, we were on a long road trip, and we just kept listening to music from the 60s. And we were doing the whole spectrum. We were listening to Bob Dylan for a while, and then we were listening um, to Jefferson Airplane for a while. And, then, you know, and what you hear is you, f you start to feel like the time. And I mean, I wasn't actually, I mean, I was so little, I wasn't listening to music. Besides, I was born in a place where the 60s never happened. But... <laughs> um, uh, a little town in Rhode Island, kind of blew, blew by us. Um, but, um, you know, you hear the songs of Bob Dylan, or we were listening to Buffalo Springfield, you know, the real 60s songs, and you can hear how that was telling people who they were. It was telling people what they valued and what was important and what they should do. They were actually learning from the art. And, they, and everyone was listening to it, which creates a unity through the whole movement. Uh, I met um, Alice's Restaurant. Who sang that? Arlo Guthrie. Arlo Guthrie. I, I had an opportunity to meet him once and, and spend some time. We went for a walk together. Uh, he was, at that point, uh, the devotee of an Indian spiritual teacher. So we sort of met in spiritual circles. Um, and. I was walking with him for a while, and we were just kind of chit-chatting. And I'd always kind of loved the song Alice's Restaurant. So, and that's you know iconic. I mean, that's sort of like to the '60s counterculture. That was like Dante's you know Divine Comedy. Um, and so I said, I couldn't resist. I just said, okay, what was it really like? You know, I mean, he was there. You know on the road from Boston to Stockbridge, hanging out in Alice's restaurant with all the other hippies, and then going down to New York and coming back. And there, I said, what was it like? And uh, he just said, he got very animated. He's kind of a gregarious guy. And he said, oh, man, it was just coming up out of the ground like a wave. And we were just catching it and going. And, and it's a great description of like what the artistic impulse can do because you know all that music and on the concerts people were going to it just grabs people and it takes you and and this is how it helps shape our culture it's the power that art can have um, and so Heidegger said it does two things art one it tells us who we are it, sh it shows us our values it picks us up and it, and it puts us on a wave of our of what really matters. It shows us what really matters to us. The other thing it does <clears throat> is it shows us things that don't yet exist but could matter, that are worth considering and maybe worth embracing. And so in that way, art becomes part of the creative process that generates the future. 
and, and, and some great artists are just presenting to us possibilities that don't really exist. And of course, those artists are the ones that everyone goes, what? What? Art? Uh, <clears throat> so I tried to think of various examples. One, the example I thought of for this was also a personal one. And it has meaning for two reasons um, in my life. But first, I'll say what it is. When I was young, I had a very interesting relationship to the uh, musician David Bowie, which was I loved his music, and I was terrified of him. And the reason I was terrified was because he was playing with all this gender bending. You know, you'd see him in this photo, he looks like a man. You see him in that photo, he looks like a woman. In this photo, he looks like a man dressed like a woman. This one, you know, he's got all these wild costumes. It was kind of blowing my mind. I didn't really get like who he was or what was happening. And this was in you know the early 70s. And I currently have a young friend living with my wife and I, who's visiting the country, um, <clears throat> who's very at, you know, she's very at a leading edge of the, of the kind of gender questioning that's going on in culture right now. Just not, not only, uh, not only deciding, just the whole questioning of gender. Does gender exist? This is kind of her ongoing question. What is a gender? Where does it exist? You know, is my biological sex my gender? Um, and why? And, and, uh, and, I'm real, and I remember ta I was having a conversation with her. This is a little kind of beyond my reach, but I was really interested to like get, I just don't feel burdened by those questions. But um, we were really getting into it. And at some point, I thought, wow. David Bowie opened a door for this. He really like opened this question up, and I just think this is this is an example of how uh, how art can be ahead of its time and can start presenting us with possibilities. Like maybe we don't have to relate to gender the way we always have. Maybe we can relate to gender differently, and and then that can propagate. And who knows? You know, not. Not every question, not every door that gets open becomes a cultural framework. But some do, and you, you can't necessarily predict. Uh, so you have, to keep, uh, you have to keep looking. So another book uh, that's interesting to note is this one. It's called Strange Tools, Art and Human Nature by Alvin Noe. And he really goes into this whole quest, this whole point about <clears throat> how art creates the future. Uh, what what art does, what, it, what does it show us. So I've given the example of David Bowie. Uh, <clears throat> and we've talked about, who did we talk about? Oh, we talked about the early Greeks and, and Dante. Uh, what I haven't talked so much about is, for instance, the, the beat poets. Uh, and the beat poets. <clears throat> who were coming in the 50s, people like Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. Uh, and, and the precursors to that would be like William Carlos Williams. A whole generation of artists that emerged post-World War II. And there was something that happened after World War II, because World War II was such a kind of disaster. It was kind of a, a, it was a human disaster, um, not necessarily the outcome, but just the fact that that could even happen. People didn't think that could happen, that things could get that 
difficult. Uh, and so a lot of artists came out of that very disillusioned with the cultural structures and wanting to destroy the cultural structures. And one of the cultural structures they wanted to destroy were structures around art. And they wanted to, to, and this is why they started to embrace spontaneity, because they wanted to say that, you know, more traditionally, art is valued based on the history of art. So the history of art has different forms, it has different structures. There's, you know, a, a student of art studies the history of art, and then when they create their own art, they're drawing from things that they've seen and things from the canon, and that's part of the measure of a great artist. And at the time, you couldn't really become a great artist unless you had all that background. A, a part of being a great artist meant you had to be very well informed about art, because otherwise, how could you create great art? And post these post-World War II artists said, no, uh-uh. You know, that art is not that kind of academic art. A true artist is the one that can bear their soul, that can have these kind of great leaps of creativity and can express something from the beyond. And it doesn't really matter whether they have um, any uh, historical background or understanding. That's not, that shouldn't be the measure of art. That's great, and many of them had it, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the measure, the true measure of art should be the depth of honesty and creativity and uh, explosive kind of immersion that's coming out of the person. And so that's what the, the beats were exploring. That's what William Carlos Williams was exploring. And there's one last thing I want to talk about in relationship to this whole endeavor of how art creates and, and shapes culture. And it's, it's what I'm personally most interested in um, at this point in my uh, life, which is that over the last, probably forever, but, but certainly over the last couple of hundred years, uh, some of what's had the biggest impact on cultures have been the gatherings of small creative circles, gatherings of individuals who are creating and supporting each other's creativity and inspiring each other to greatness beyond what any of them would achieve on their own. Uh, you may know a musician, a rock musician named Brian Eno. Uh, and by the, they had a little... He and David Bowie actually had a little uh, kind of creative group, just the two of them. They, they spent, I think, a summer or something in Berlin, and they just created some a magnificent music at that time, uh, some number of months. And they were really, I read about it in a book recently, they were really kind of going head to head and having a great time. But Brian Eno came up with this term, which he he put, uh, it's a concept that he, that is an expansion of the idea of genius. So we all know, we've all heard of the, uh, the word genius, which is someone who is extraordinary, who has extraordinary powers of creativity and understanding. Brian Eno said even more powerful than genius is what he called senius. Uh, and senius is the genius that's embedded in scenes of people. Uh, and so he said when, when certain scenes come together, an independent source of genius starts to emerge in the scene itself. 
And so one of the great examples of this is, is uh, Paris in the 1920s, when this artistic circle gathered around, um, physically they, they gathered largely around this little bookstore called Shakespeare and Company, which you could still uh, go visit. And a woman whose name I forgot, and, and also Gertrude Stein. Uh, and, and who was roaming in and out of there? Picasso, you know, painters like Picasso. Um, who's that? Yes, Alice B. Topis, um, Hemingway, uh, Gelda and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, I mean, just uh, James Joyce, just giants. It's unbelievable the concentration of genius in that one place. And they were all coming in and, and you know, um, and they were kind of fighting and arguing and also inspiring and, and adoring. And, and all of that energy created some of the greatest art of the time period and, and some would say essentially was the birth of the modern world uh, in, in this sort of 20-year period from sometime in the teens to sometime maybe around the 30s. And, you know, another example is, is in America, the, a favorite of mine, the American Transcendentalist, of which it is said between a certain span of about 15 years, most of the great literature written in those years in America were written in one of only four households. And you know, it was people like um, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau and um, uh, Alcott, uh, Mary Lu yeah. Louise, Louisa May Alcott. Um, and uh, Margaret Fuller, and you know, if you extend it a little bit further, you get Herman Melville, and of course Nathaniel Hawthorne's part. I mean, again, it's just like, so how does this happen? Did it just so happen that the the, the greatest geniuses of the time happened to decide they wanted to go to a little tiny town in Concord, or was something happening there, and then the people that ended up there were were brought into greatness, and that's kind of what Brian Eno's theory is, is that the scene itself, obviously those people were geniuses, but that there may be more geniuses among us than we think, is the, is the basic theory. That in the right circumstances, in the right cauldron, in the right scene, any one of us might rise to a degree of creative genius that we would never get to if we, if we didn't hit that particular scene. And so, in relationship to you know, kind of what I, I would say, if I could do one thing with this lifetime, it would be to give birth to some kind of creative scene that would start to create seeds of a completely different way of being. And it doesn't really matter to me whether I'm in it or not. What matters is that it actually happens and that some group of people starts to engage it's almost like a, a nuclear reaction, you know, where some group of people are engaging with new ideas with a, with a degree of intensity that's great enough that's, that almost like a nuclear fusion will occur that will allow for an energy to be released that will just spur enormous creativity. Um, so fundamentally, that's everything I wanted to say tonight about, about art and its role in creating the future and what art is. 
there's obviously a ton more to say, but this is a nice survey um, for the room. But if there's any questions, I'd be happy to, to take any. Yeah, so the question was, I was, I was talking about the romantics as, as saying that, that uh, we are creating truth. Uh, and you were pointing out that uh, the German idealists like Victor Schelling and Hegel had a role for God in that, which is true. So these things are always more complicated. Um, but so, for instance, Hegel had his whole, um, his whole theory that basically you start with the absolute, and the absolute is, is essentially the sum total of everything that's possible. It's, it's the unmanifest infinity, which is God. It hasn't happened yet, but it's there waiting to be manifest. And then what we experience as history is the unfolding creation of this unmanifest. And, and we participate it through the actions of our lives. We participate in that creation. But essentially, the end of that road is going to be the full manifestation of all the potential that was there at the beginning. So, so the way he wanted to say it is you start with God, which is unmanifest perfection, and then you have all of history that is a process of bringing God into manifestation, and at the end, you have a fully manifest perfection. Um, so, <coughs> um, you know, hey, the, the German idealists are definitely related to the Romantics, although not identical. So many Romantic thinkers, and, and one whom I'm particularly fond of, William James, really had a problem with Hegel. Because uh, what James said was, in Hegel's theory, there's actually no creativity in the universe. You start with something, you go through this whole process, and you end up with exactly the thing you started with, except in manifestation. And so, to William James, that, takes, that makes a perfectly deterministic, that's a deterministic view of reality that he didn't feel had any place in a creative universe. Uh, he has this great photograph of him sitting on his, uh, he owned a farm up in New Hampshire, uh, and he was sitting on a bench with another philosopher who was a Hegelian, and someone wanted to take a photograph of them because they were both very famous philosophers. And, and as they took the photograph, William James raised his fist in the air and he said, damn the absolute! Because these guys were always having this argument about the existence. Because James said, no, the universe starts with nothing and then we create it. And nobody knows where this is going to go. And that's the only way that there can be real creativity in the universe. And that's the only way that there can be real morality in the universe. Because otherwise, everything was predetermined. So there's a lot of differences between these, these different views. Um, Schelling and Fichte, I don't know as well. Uh, they were both very mystical, and very mystically inclined, particularly Schelling. But also they had this much more of a creative spirit uh, in terms of personal creativity. Uh, they even, I think it was Schelling in, in his, he's maybe more romantic than the other two. But they used to like to, to write um, pieces uh, by you know, Schelling would write a little, and then they would mail it to somebody else, and then they would write a little, and then they would mail it to someone else, and they would write a little, because they thought, well, that way we really don't know where it's going to go. You know, and then there's some real creativity in the mix, and we'll see what happens after it's gone like 10 rounds. Um, so, and, you know, it's a great, it's a, it's a 
there's a lot more to say about, and there's nuance and subtlety um, for sure. But but generally, there was a creative edge to the Romantics, and and even you know, the Hegel, Victor, and Schelling were all you know kind of emerging out of Kant, and Kant was also saying that whatever is the really real is unknowable, and what we can engage with is phenomenal, and we have a role in creating what that is. So they all fundamentally wanted to create space for creativity. You know, some of the things that inspire me, there's this great, have you ever heard of the free school? It was in New York in, I think, like in the 70s. Do you know it? Um, it I think it was, all, and, and maybe I have this wrong. I only heard about it once, but I never thought, I forgot about it. it was, I heard that it was a group of thinkers and maybe professors who were kind of not really in with how academics was happening at the time. And they started their own school in an apartment. I'm getting a yes, so this is. And, and I think it ran for about five years. And um, Robert Anton Wilson was one of them. And he's kind of this way far out thinker. And I thought, wow, that's where I wanted to go to school. At the free school in New York in the apartment with these five people who were just you know, wanting to do their own thing. So I love that. There's a, um, there was a college in North or South Carolina uh, where they did pottery and poetry. And I mean, yeah. yes, Black Mountain. And they just created some just amazing people came out of that in the 60s. So I, if I had enormous amounts of money, I would create some kind of school like that, where basically there was, there was an invitation to come and to really be as, as open and far out uh, as you could be, and, and then see what would happen uh, out of that.